Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, June 19th, we are studying Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 to 21. In today's text, the sixth angel pours out the sixth bowl, leading to kings and armies assembling at Armageddon. And the seventh angel pours out the seventh bowl, and a voice from the temple says, It is done. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets. Dr. Teets serves as Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Teets, oh, welcome back to Sharper Iron. it is super fun to be back. I finally get a chance to talk about the book I always want to teach here at the seminary, but I've never been permitted to. So, so yeah, I, I, could, I could have missed this chance. <laughs> We're going to let you dabble in the New Testament. Yeah, so I'll only let the record show it's not today. really New Testament. It's really just an Old Testament book that happens to be written a little too late in the wrong language. It, because yeah, so well, well, talk to us more about that because I've been asking all the guests as we've gone through the Book of Revelation how we need to approach the Book of Revelation as Christians. How do we, you know, how do we use it helpfully? What's the background that we? Yeah, need? I mean, so I, I'm really serious that. about that early quip that this is the book I'm dying to teach, mostly because he's speaking in Old Testament idiom throughout to really understand what John is doing here, and we'll get into this. We got some fun stuff. Little I realize I had signed up for Armageddon when I agreed to do this. I mean, it's uh, what a happy topic. But being able to understand this really complex uh, use of allusions, we're dealing with this massive mosaic of Old Testament and also intertestamental allusions, that to understand what he's doing, you have to understand the text that he's interacting with. He assumes a lot of us as a reader, which, uh, depending on Old Testament, your Old Testament literacy can be actually pretty daunting at times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's there's a lot here that like you have to you have to know Zechariah or you have to know Ezekiel, the parts of the Old Testament that we don't always learn in Sunday school. And so you really, as, as other guests have said, in order to understand the Book of Revelation helpfully, you have to read the other oh, sixty five first. Just so you don't get ahead of yourself. Remember, this is uh, this really is a, a heavily Isaianic book. Okay, granted, I'm biased. I'm an Isaiah expert. That's my world. But uh, don't forget the heavy use of Isaiah here. We can't we can't forget about can't give, forget about Isaiah. That's right. So with I me mean, with that that Old Testament background, then what what's John doing? What's the point of, of Revelation? Just help us keep uh, that big picture. We're in dealing mind. with primarily persecution literature, and because of that, that really governs how John is writing here. Uh, when you're dealing with persecution literature, you have to be writing for the insiders in case the outsiders actually stumble upon the document. So he's really writing in almost, I hate using the word code, but written in such a way that he's providing hope to the persecuted church throughout all the ages, but speaking in such a way that is very meaningful to them that would be almost meaningless to outsiders. Uh, hence these heavy use of illusions, and he plays around with a lot of his illusions. He'll He'll take some really common ones and flip them on his head at times. Yeah, 
Yeah. Okay. So talk to us about the immediate context then. I mentioned in the introduction, we're talking about the sixth and seventh bulls or sensors. What do we need to know about what's been happening in so Revolution? So we're once again on another cycle. It's repeating over and over again in escalation. That's Revelation's primary structure here. So we've already danced this dance one other time before in Revelation when we dealt with the trumpets. So now he's taking a lot of that trumpet language earlier and now taking it to a new step. So we have this uh, sixth, sense, sixth sensor. Now that's hard to say. Uh, he's taking it and giving us an image of the preparation for the final plague, and then we get the big battle for the seventh. So this moving to pick, build, 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 and then bamo picture of the end, which he's now done a few times in the book. Right, right. Talk to us a little bit about the, the bulls or the censers. If yesterday, or in the previous episode, we talked about, you know, it's translated bull in the ESV. This isn't a, a serial bull that we're talking about. With your, your Old Testament background, what, what do we need to be picturing So we have this image really drawn from a lot of, a lot of the language of, of worship here. So we have all of these, oh, the culmination of, of every one of these images of here's what's going on in the in the heavenly realm so with that we can see the heavenly throne room really bringing about the end of history okay so the heavenly throne room bringing about the end of history that's happening with the censors in this case we get angels six and seven the last two of those let's dive into the text this is from the esv the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about one hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. That's our text for today. That's Revelation 16, verses 12 to 21. All right, Dr. Teeth. so the sixth angel pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. We've seen the river Euphrates in the book of Revelation before, but here we need some Old Testament it, background, I think, again. So you, you cannot escape a couple of things. One, we have Euphrates, so we have an Assyrian illusion, but the biggest thing to keep in mind with both of these final, these final censors is that we really are dealing with rich Exodus illusions here. Uh, the uh, John's heavily using Exodus, which is a big deal for understanding what's going on here. Uh, Exodus really is how salvation is described throughout the entire Bible. So by drawing upon the uh, parting of the Red Sea, drawing upon, we have all kinds of plague language, we'll get into the frogs in a bit, 
and hailstones and thunderbolts and lightning and all those other right. things, is that he is taking a language that both combines the crossing of the Red Sea in terms of the uh, great river Euphrates, but then he is taking an image that once was strategically important. This is where the empires were in the Old Testament. It's the Assyrian Empire. It's the Babylonian Empire. And then utterly destroying it. So uh, why, I mean, why is the river Euphrates dried up? You're, I mean, I understand Exodus allusions, but the river Euphrates doesn't sound like, is that supposed to be akin to the Red Sea or something else going on here? Yeah. Talk to me about, about why that's significant. It's being dried Water up. Water in the Bible, contrary to what my students love to say, is generally not a baptismal illusion. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, don't get me wrong. Hearers, please don't misunderstand. What? I love baptism. There's a lot of baptism in the Bible, but you have to be really careful. Whenever you see water in the Bible, its primary image, its primary significance is that of death and chaos. So this waging war upon the rivers, and we see this throughout, we're going to get a lot of this kind of chaos battle language in this text, is that we have what was the representative of the strong power against God's people. And for it to be utterly destroyed by God means that this place that once was this massive threat is now gone. But then, so, and I love what John does. He sets us up. So you have that, okay, Great River Euphrates is gone. So, okay, that Assyrian nightmare, that stock phrase for the big, bad, scary empire is now gone. And we would expect, and we would expect to have some sort of victory going on. But instead, oh, what? its water was dried up to prepare the ways for the kings of the east. So instead of us having an end of everything, instead now we have the unleashing of the evil for the final battle. So it's a really weird tension that John does to us here. So maybe maybe like this then, with the river Euphrates being dried up, the, these kings of the east should have received that as a sign of judgment from God, drying up the river, drying up any power that they had. But rather, they took it as an invitation from God, hey, now we don't have to build a bridge or you know, take boats across the river and we can go attack. The, the doors are open. It's time to time to finally win a victory against God, God's people. It's time to bring them to, an utter, to their utter destruction. So, and I mean, this is pretty, pretty typical from the Old Testament as well, where the, the enemies come from this direction, from the direction of the river Euphrates, from the north, it seems, is, is usually the way that it's phrased. So this is, I mean, for the, the people of God with the Old Testament in their minds, hearing for, about the river Euphrates on the one hand should have been a sign of judgment, but now here are the enemies of God's people from of old, now all massing together. To, yeah, and, to and it's pretty scary stuff here. Yeah, that threat from the north, which is always that weird moment. Yes, I, we all know Mesopotamia is east, but the invasion route would be up around through the north. Hard to cross a desert unless you have a lot of camels. Right. So you always have that threat from this place. And instead of it being divine judgment, now it's really God unleashing evil for evil's destruction. Okay, talk more about that. God yeah, unleashing evil. Good old, oh man, nothing like, nothing make, like the old theodicy trap yeah. to make life fun. Although I, I, I still recall it when I was teaching at Concordia Chicago, I was uh, doing uh, the Bible, so biblical survey class, and I got to the book of Job and said, uh, Job is about the oh is about theodicy. Which, by the way, yes, hearers, that's an oversimplification. That's a different that's a different radio broadcast though. 
And a student raised her hand and she said, I didn't realize Homer wrote Job. I'm like, okay, that's clever, but, but he didn't write the Odyssey. So you do have God as the master of history. Uh, we've got to be really careful when we talk about any sort of battle going on here. It's very, uh, this notion of dualism in the Bible is really not the case. Uh, we're not dealing with the uh, dark side versus, versus the Oh, what light side, man! I'm butchering a Star Wars illusion. That's bad. Yeah. Uh, that's that. But, but we. That's okay. But God is completely in charge in order to accomplish His purposes of of bringing the establishment of His kingdom. Yeah, it, it gets a little rough though. Yeah, how God is behind all of this. Uh, the enemies really are not in control. Right. Well, and I, we've seen that throughout the various cycles in the book of Revelation where these things yeah. are allowed to happen. And we, we've made note of that before. So here, again, the Lord being the one behind the pouring out of the censers, the water drying up, he is the one who is the, the God of the armies. There's a, another Old Testament allusion, Yahweh Sabaoth. I think we're, we're seeing that here, that, that the Lord, when he says he's of the armies, it's not just the Israelite armies that he's in charge of. He's, in fact, in charge of all the armies, exactly. even the enemy And ones. this notion of the other piece with the whole drying up of Euphrates, yeah, and we're, I'm dying to get to Exodus language. It's not, it's there kind of. But this also Close. seems to be an allusion to Cyrus. So we talk about Cyrus being, oh, mm. if you want to do messianic theology in the book of Isaiah, the only person called Mashiach is Cyrus, which is always fun to bring up. But Cyrus actually did this once before. So if you talk about God's delivering agent, mm. uh, Cyrus, who brings the end to the Babylonian Empire, allows the people to return to, the, to their homeland. Is Cyrus already did this once? So we have a possible allusion to what Cyrus did way back when, when he brought about God's purposes to bring God's people back home. Tell, what, what did Cyrus do previously? Yeah, to bring oh, when he God's conquered Babylon, he actually, to conquer Babylon, which was located on, or not, not to conquer Babylon, yeah, conquer Babylon. Yeah, Cyrus Persian, Babylonian Empire is he actually had to dry up the Euphrates River in order to ford it in order to, in order to make the conquest. So this is a nice, how's that okay. for, this is why I love Revelation. It is the land of the super obscure, which for those of us who are modern yeah. hearers, uh, thank goodness for good commentaries. For sure. Okay, so the, again, this is where the, the drying up of the Great River Euphrates both has, it seems, connotations of salvation for God's people but also the connotation of here comes the bad guys. I mean, it seems like both of those things, both of those oh, things are yeah, happening and the, at the same and time. And the marvelous tension here and why John is doing this is this keeps drawing us in. Okay, what's going to go on here? Okay, is this good? Is this bad? You can almost hear him luring us into this massive proclamation of hope, but also causing us as hearers at this point to wonder kind of what's going on. Uh, this could be good. This could be bad. And then, then it gets even arguably worse in 13 and 14. All right, well, let's, let's start looking at 13 then. John also sees next, coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. So, all right, I guess there's a couple of things we need to talk about. Say, I'm sure you really want to talk about the frogs because I'm, I'm actually I'm a little bit more fan of the dragon, but, but we can, we'll talk about frogs too. Okay. Well, we'll get to uh, let's let's hold off on the frogs. I want to talk about the the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. We've not met the false prophet at least by that name yet in the book of Revelation. So, 
Who are these? Oh, remind us, who are these three is, figures? This uh, is John's uh, parody of the Trinity. So we have uh, the dragon, beast, and then false prophet becomes the representatives of the evil trinity. Uh, so we have, uh, and two of these are loaded terms. Uh, this dragon language, which is always fun when people bump into dragons in the, in the Old Testament, is that the dragon is drawing again upon this rich story of Israel's neighbors, that God is the one who battles against the evil serpent. Then again, Oh, God's, but so we have this God battling against this evil force, which we've already seen since Genesis 3, uh, the serpent Satan. So this dragon is Satan himself. Uh, the beast seems to have much more of a connotation of, oh, he is your uh, ru uh, ruler of the earth. And then the false prop prophet is our minister of propaganda for this evil trinity, uh, making him essentially a parody, a really awful parody of the Holy Spirit. And in terms of the vision that John had in chapters 12 and 13, where you first saw the dragon who was making war against the woman with child and then tried to devour the child, tried to attack the woman, was unsuccessful in all those attempts. In chapter 13, there were the two beasts. The, the one from the sea came first, and that would be, I think, the beast that's being described here. And then the beast from the earth that you described, the false prophet, the minister of propaganda, that fits pretty well with what the beast from the earth, the second beast of Revelation 13 did, in terms of trying to get people to worship the first yeah, exactly. beast. exactly. So now here they are, and their job is to muster all of the troops in order to win this battle. So the fact that these frogs are going to come out of the mouth of, of these three entities, this unholy trinity, that also seems like there's maybe, you know, think about the idea of a parody or the mockery that Satan and and his forces make of God, the fact that these enemies are going to come out of oh, the yeah, mouth I, seems significant. It, it really too. did take me a while to get my sea legs when I was getting, I haven't been, it's been a while since I've dealt with the revelation. There's that kind of state of shock of, okay, got to get, got to get back to this world of hyper symbolism, lots of mosaics, lots of illusions. So this notion of mouth, which, oh, gets repeated, what, three times here in verse 13, is that the mouth is the location of a royal proclamation. So we talk about the sword coming from the mouth, a way of God's authoritative word being proclaimed. So now we have royal proclamation, but it's nothing but demonic evil. Okay, so out of their mouths are coming nothing but demonic evil. And John specifies that they, these are three unclean spirits like frogs. So talk to us, unclean Ooh, spirits, why like uh, frogs? Yeah, that was, I freely admit when I went over this a couple times on, oh, a couple times I was having my moment of, okay, unclean spirits, frogs, okay, John, you've, okay, now in what, verse two of this pericope, you've done it to me again. So the frogs, let's go with the easy one. Actually, they're both tied together. Uh, so we have unclean spirits. So this is, instead of the Holy Spirit going out to bring God's people faith, bring God's people to relationship. Now we have the demonic that is designed, that's out there to lead people away. In this case, leading those kings from the east, what will eventually be the whole cosmos, the whole world arrayed against God's people. And then by bringing up frogs, we're now back, we have our now, really our second, at least according to my math, of uh, allusion to the plague of frogs. And that, hmm. so now we have all of the plague language and this gets us to the whole point of the plagues back in Exodus, 
where when you, the whole point of the plagues, it's sort of the battle of the gods, if you will. Who's going to be superior, Yahweh or the false gods? So now we have an imagery of one of the false gods that got defeated during the, during the plagues. And now here, they're being brought up for one last final defeat. Well, and, you know, as I was thinking through the, the Exodus allusion here and trying to figure why, why frogs of all the ones that he could bring up, because we, we've seen others. Perhaps, I was wondering about this. Maybe the frogs being, I think, the second one, one of the very early ones that I think the Egyptian magicians were able to replicate in part, kind of like I know with the blood they were able to do that, with the snake, I think they were able to do something with the frogs as well. And, and maybe that's the reason that the frogs show up is because the we're seeing here this you know, mimicry, mockery from the unholy trinity of what the true trinity does. And maybe that's why the frogs yeah, particularly and, show and, up. Yeah, I don't know. And that's... The other possibility here is that the frog plague actually hits the leadership first. So having them closely connected to kings. And the kings are right now the focal point of, of, of this, uh, what the sixth angel is giving us an image of. Okay, so all right, so we've got unclean spirits like frogs. Then in the verse 14, John specifies they are demonic spirits, in, in case we didn't catch that from the unclean spirits. They're also demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Okay, Help man alive. I think we officially, how many different loaded terms can we cram into one verse? Yeah, demonic spirits. Okay, yeah, John, we already kind of figured that out from the unclean spirits. So thanks for letting us know they're demonic. We already knew that. But by repeating this, this really does provide a level of emphasis to let us know this is evil in action. This is Satan's final battle. And this notion of them performing signs, and this you, the point you already brought up, where, okay, now we have those, those horrible magicians who are able to at least mock the first couple of plagues. So here we have them doing everything in their power to imitate God, or uh, imitate, let's go with, oh, uh, to have an absolute perversion of who God is in order to bring about, oh, yeah. uh, and it's this whole summoning of all the nations. Mm. And it's going to happen on the great day of God the Almighty. I don't, know, I don't want to skip too far ahead, but that's a, another Old Testament illusion, yeah. it seems, but we need to But before we get about. that, let's get to the, we, have, we can't skip over the assembling. This notion of the nations okay. being assembled here uh, takes us back to a couple different spots. Uh, one of the more, oh, probably, I would say, well, I'm not going to say basic, but I just did, I guess. We have the language of Psalm 2, where the kings of the earth gather together. And, and it's very similar to what John is giving us a picture of here in Revelation 16, where we have this image of all of the, you know, all of the kings. They take their stand, they gather together in order to oh, wage war against God's anointed. Which, for us, reading Revelation 16 and looking backwards to, to Psalm 2, Oh, this mean we already now know how Psalm two ends. Uh, they gather together, and then God scoffs. And when God laughs at you, it is not an oopsie daisy cute moment. It means you, you pathetic human, uh, have a nice day, go play in traffic. That's essentially what's going on here. And the nations being gathered, connected to uh, Euphrates' battle language. This is something we see to pick up. Okay, this is my gratuitous illusion for the day. Uh, we see the very same language in how the book of Obadiah starts. 
and for that matter, most of the anti-Edom oracles. So Obadiah is all about the summoning of the nations. Uh, Isaiah 34 does a very similar move, uh, only instead of it being Euphrates, uh, Isaiah and then Obadiah picking on Edom. But for a very similar effect that we see everybody being gathered, one nation is but a foretaste of what's going to happen on the, on the final day of Yahweh. Okay, okay. So yeah, when, when Edom shows up in the Old Testament like that, usually that's, that's intending not just the, the descendants of Esau the man, but that's standing in for, for all humanity. Yeah, uh, well, okay, Testament. truth in advertising, I've written the Obadiah commentary for CPH, shameless plug, and allegedly working on co-authoring the Isaiah 28 to 39 volume for CPH as well. So I've been spending all my time annihilating Edomites in my writing, so I'm working on 34 right now. So, But yeah, Edom has this, they are the absolute traitor. They take on... We have the loaded language in terms of, okay, they're the brother who was not brotherly. Uh, they're the brother who, oh, and their descendants tried to stop the exodus. But they are become a type, really, of everything that opposes God's purposes. And hence why this uh, Edom illusion comes in handy here. Um, okay, and, and the assembling brings that into play. I appreciate the reference also to Psalm 2. I think you know, tying this text into Psalm 2 really adds to what you see happening there. As, I, as I've always pictured Psalm 2 with the kings gathering together, I've always imagined them the kings calling the council themselves and, and saying, you know, join us together. But putting that in the same context as Revelation 16, then, you see the demonic activity behind that as well. That, that when those who would set themselves against the Lord do so, they're allying themselves not just with other kings, but they're ultimately allying themselves. Yeah, and that's a nice thing for us to keep in mind as we read. It's so easy for us to ignore all the stuff against foreign nations. And we have foreign nation stuff here in Revelation 16. It's so easy for us to not want to care about the Moabites because they've been gone for a while. Ditto with the Edomites, take your pick. But the reason we care about them is that they, they really are just stand-ins for the demons behind them. Wow. Wow. All right. So we're seeing all that and more here in Revelation 16. We're going to pick up more of it on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to the Reverend Dr. Ryan Teeth this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, June 19th. We're studying Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 to 21 with the Reverend Dr. Ryan Teeds. He serves as Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. 
Dr. T, it's prior to the break. We were looking at verse 14, and we talked about the assembling of these nations. They are assembling for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So here we have another important yeah, Old Testament. We're talking day of the Lord talk. So this is the a major prophetic motif described in all kinds of different ways. We can call it, it's either that day, day of, day of the Lord, day of Yahweh, the latter days. So a really rich, rich, loaded language in the Old Testament that describes whenever God sets things right. So when we talk about Day of the Lord theology, so Joel does it, Isaiah does it, uh, pretty much Zephaniah 1 is a text that we should probably have in our background here. If you want to know what the day, the mighty day of Yahweh looks like, Zephaniah 1 is probably, is probably one of the most vivid pictures in the Bible of it. It's whenever God sets things right. And when we see how this day of Yahweh has shown up throughout the old, throughout the Bible, sorry, I almost said Old Testament by mistake. Old Testament scholar, I do sometimes, oh, accent, oh, it's one of those accent, uh, occupational hazards, perhaps. Is that we are looking for whenever God sets things right. Looking towards the New Testament, the word, the language day of the Lord actually doesn't really happen much, except in Revelation. But instead, it gets oh, put in a slightly different idiom. Whenever Jesus proclaims, oh, it's Jesus' primary sermon in the synoptics, the reign of God is at hand. And by saying that, Jesus is saying, okay, the day of the Lord that you've been looking for, the, that day, the latter days, take your pick, is now here with God establishing reign and setting things right. So we see this already have, has happened in the life of Christ. We set things in order, and we'll get into it with the signs of the seventh, in the seventh censor. Man, I should not have picked anything with so many S sounds is that we have this, that we already saw this on the cross. The victory has already been won. But now we're looking for the victory, oh, to be seen, oh, we're looking for, the victory's won, but now we're waiting for it to be finally brought to its completion. All right, in verse 15, the editors of the ESV put these words in red, suggesting that these are words of Jesus, which makes sense based on what those words say. Behold, I am coming like a thief, Blessed is the one who stays away, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. What? Why the sudden interjection from the Lord yeah, here? Yeah, so we're and building. We are getting ready. The sixth angel really is only setting us up. There's This is all preparation. Uh, the seventh angel is what's going to actually give us the battle. So we're, oh, you could hear it. And, you, and at this point, by the end of 14, let's not kid ourselves. This is pretty scary stuff. We had that tension with the Euphrates, good or bad. But now... Uh, this is a very terrifying image of, okay, God's people are going to be persecuted, and they're going to have, oh, the evil is unleashed, and it seems like there's nothing to stop. So what should we do now? So Jesus jumps in and says, okay, don't forget, uh, stay awake. And this language of staying awake means to uh, cling to faith, uh, to to be able to rest knowing that when you read Revelation, we win. And that's what it means to stay awake here. Yeah, that's one of the common things that Jesus says in his end times discourses in the Gospels is this idea of staying awake. He also uses here in Revelation 16 the image of keeping garments on, which is a little more familiar, I think, within the book of Revelation when it comes to garments. Yeah. Talk about that. Okay, I, I may have... I. And there's probably Old Testament yeah, 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 I, as well. I, so. need to, I, I already kind of went, out, went off on water, not necessarily being baptism. So now I have to redeem that comment by saying garments are baptismal garments. 
th- this is the clothing that yes. God, that are that's put on God's people through baptism, and by and it covers up their sin, and that's why you know, keeping his garments on so that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Uh, the reason the garments matter is this is Christ's righteousness that covers us up during our uh, that covers up our unrighteousness. So this image of uh, baptismal re- re- uh, redemption, baptismal regeneration. So, yeah, and stay firm. That's the message of Revelation. Uh, Revelation's not a prophet. Uh, prophets are telling you to repent. Revelation is telling you, hang in there. Hang in there. Yeah, well, in some of you with these words of Jesus here, it's almost like a call back to the, the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Here's the danger that you're facing, dear, dear Christians. Stay faithful. Remain faithful. Stay awake. Keep those baptismal clothes on. That is your protection from this great evil that's assembling. And so the Lord interjects at this key moment before the battle is fought to, to protect his people by his word. And, I'm saying, so, and we're, even, we're even back to the first covering up of sin by those animal, animal skins back in Genesis 3. Sure. Yeah, that's right. All those, all those clothing imagery that we have throughout the scriptures find, find a place here in Revelation as well. Now, in, in verse 16, they assemble, so these, these kings are being assembled, at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And when I saw that you were doing this text, Dr. Teets, I was sure that this was the reason, because here we have a reference to Hebrew, and you are a professor of Hebrew, and so we have Armageddon, and you can solve As the mystery. As opposed to the real reason that this just worked better with my calendar, but uh, it, was, it was sheer, sheer dumb luck. Okay. <laughs> Uh, this is, oh, Armageddon, I mean, this is our cultural cliche. Heck, you could probably, you could probably do a movie right. and call it Armageddon and may sell a few few million tickets or whatever it sold. I mean, Bruce Willis could actually probably do okay in it. Or, yeah, that's, I hate to break it to you, that's officially a dated <laughs> reference. Those of you who get it, thank you. I'm glad you're still around. Uh, so, it, but it's an absolute, so super cliche. It's our cliche of the final battle. It's been used, written about, alluded to a bunch but it's a weird compound word that is a bit of an oxymoron so har means mountain mageddon is megiddo so the mountain of megiddo small problem uh i'm looking forward i'm actually doing my first trip to the holy land in november which i cannot wait to go on and i will hopefully you know get be able to see megiddo i don't know if it's on the agenda yet uh but uh i'm there's no mountain in megiddo uh, I love climbing mountains, but you don't find a mountain in Megiddo. So we have to under we have two different symbols being smushed together here to de- to describe the location of the final battle. Okay, so a mountain of Megiddo. What, and this is ironic to me that that the word Armageddon has found such a place in popular culture and as an idiom today for the final battle. But when you look at Armageddon here. The reference is not quite as obvious. So, what, I mean, what are our options here with the mountain of Megiddo? What, what is John? Why this yeah. location? So, first, let's unpack the first half of the compound word here. So, once I get into mountain, uh, mountain is consistently where heaven and earth meet, and God acts decisively to bring about God's purposes. A um, uh, paper I forced my undergrad students to write once in a New Testament course was trace the theme of the mountain. I told them to write six pages. They, of course, bellyached about it being a six-page paper. And I said, for crying out loud, uh, you're going to have a hard time writing at least six pages on this topic. So we see this consistently. And Genesis 2 portrays Eden as a mountain. And we got a big mountain coming in Revelation 21. 
So already by calling it a mountain, this tells us this is where God is acting decisively to bring about God's purposes. Super loaded term, and hearers, I'm sure you can start already a brainstorming how many different mountains there are. And yes, you should be able to write far more than six pages on it. Don't worry, you don't have to do it for me, though. So we have Har, so we got the mountain. And then we have another loaded place name. So Megiddo is located in the central part of, of Israel, Israel, Judah, Judea, that area. And this is a place that actually is where God's people suffered multiple defeats. Uh, this isn't a mountainous terrain. This is actually wide open terrain. It's the terrain where your enemy's chariots can run ramshod over you. So this is now a consistent place of battle. Because, well, and chariots are sort of your M1 Abrams tanks of the ancient Near East. At least Old Testament-wise, we can get into, I'm sure you have, a, you'll, you can have a classist on telling me about Roman ta- tactics. But there is this idea here of, okay, this is a place where we've actually suffered a lot of defeats. On top of it, it actually gets tied to good old, I was going to call him Shlomo just because his name in Hebrew sounds funny. We'll go with Solomon. I mean, this is where Solomon built horse stables, which, and don't get me wrong, I like horses. Uh, But horses in the Bible are also images of idolatry. Uh, horses are consistently bad, and I know those of you who take it Hebrew, you learn your noun paradigm as, what, sususas, uh, su ah. I'm butchering it now. Those of you who can speak Hebrew, don't hold that against me. But, so, this is a place in which God's people tried to take care of themselves. That's what Solomon's doing. Uh, trusting your own military might and machinations is, all, is, is akin to idol, is idolatry in the Bible. So now we have this place that had a, a horrible history, but now it's where God is going to finally set the battle that the battle to win. Okay, yeah, I, this is this is good. So Megiddo would have been known for the the place where they tried to win victories, but they'd not been able to. The chariots of other nations came in as the tanks and destroyed them, and so God say, "I'm going to make it a mountain." I'm going to make it a place where where I meet you to act decisively for your salvation, and I will deliver the victory that you never could win. You never should have thought you could have won in the first place. I'm going to show you that you can't by winning it for you here at this mountain of of Megiddo. And so it becomes a, a place where, yeah, that tension comes back a little bit, but we're going to see we're seeing how it's going to be resolved already by the fact that it's a mountain. The enemies are assembling. But God is going to yeah, defeat them. Unless they be too place. negative. There are a couple places that are around Megiddo that were actually much more positive. Uh, Mount Carmel's in the vicinity. So now we have where Elijah won his victory over the prophets right. of Baal. And uh, Deborah Song also talks about Megiddo being a place where God's people won a sudden, unexpected victory. So it's not completely negative. But yeah, it, this is, again, one of these massive alluded terms. Yeah, and, and I think, again, the just the, the fact, like you pointed out, with the, just the mountain, before you even get to the place, the fact that it's a mountain is huge, because we know what God does on mountains. And so we're going to see him do something again on this mountain as we get into the seventh censer. So let, let's talk about the seventh censer. Uh, it gets poured out in verse 17. It gets poured out into the air, which that's a, a little unusual, perhaps. Why? Any thoughts on why it gets poured out into the air? So now, as we... Okay, we've had all this preparation. We've been excited. We've been waiting for something. Finally, seventh sensor happens. And now, by putting it in the air, it now involves the entire cosmos. This is no longer some localized thing. Uh, and it is taking up the entire world. 
Okay, so in pouring into the air involves the entire cosmos, and then a loud voice comes from the temple, from the throne, says, it is oh, done. Uh, how much, well, uh, I, yeah, I think, I, I think that word Tetelestai may actually sound vaguely familiar. That's, uh, it is finished. Uh, Jesus, the words from John, just, uh, I, I realized I accidentally spoke in tongues there for a second by using using my Koine Greek. Yeah, okay, so let's, uh, so we have a loud voice, and then it's from the temple and from the throne. So we already have had a voice being uh, God's authoritative speech. So this is an absolute contrast to the uh, unholy trinity, the, trinity, the perverted trinity, whatever you want to call it, the, the dragon, beast, and prophet. But now look at how we have both temple and throne brought together here. And this gets us into the whole point of what the temple really is. Uh, okay, I, I have my gratuitous Isaiah reference. So when he shows up in Isaiah 6 in the temple, what does he see? He sees the king. That the temple is right. God's seat of power. Or to use language that's a little bit more common, when we talk about the language of heaven in the Bible, it's heaven can mean one of two things. It can be either the opposite of earth, so the up stuff. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The other thing that heaven means is uh, where God rules. So when Christ is seated, or when Christ ascends to heaven, it isn't him going up in the air. It's him in the throne room ruling the cosmos. All right. So the throne and temple are put together here. And then, of course, you have this loud voice that does contrast what was coming out of the mouth of the dragon, beast, and false prophet previously. And here what comes out of the, the temple, God's throne room. Yeah. It is done, which again, to telestai is the Greek word, it is finished, that Jesus speaks in John 19 before he dies. Here, it is done, not the same word, but it sure seems like we're yeah. meant to, to connect and the two. everything that we're going to see now with these signs, we've already seen before in Jesus' death and, and resurrection, but especially Good Friday. All of these signs that are going to reappear here, the, the darkness, the earth, the earth shaking, well, I guess there isn't darkness here. Uh, but this language of this is very much stuff we've already seen because when Jesus dies on the cross, that is the day of the Lord has happened. Right. So the the day of the the Lord comes early, which I think this is this is important. The the when of this text, the sixth and seventh angels, we often think of the book of Revelation as this is what is going to happen. But right here we're at least, or maybe we're also seeing what has happened already and, in Christ. And one step further, it's where we are right now. I mean, we are... Talk about so that. We, how is this where we are right now? Christ on the cross, the kingdom of God is at hand, the, or the kingdom of, uh, kingdom of heaven's hand, God, or to use uh, words you may have heard before, uh, thy kingdom come, which should sound vaguely familiar, I hope, Right. is that already in Christ, the victory's been won, God's people have been gathered, and the forces and God's people have been have been made as children, and right now we live in this reality. We are God's children. Uh, God speaks to us. God's speaking to us out of the temple when His word is proclaimed. When we're gathered gathered together for worship, so we are actually experiencing this. We just can't see it. We experience this by faith that we are living in this in this ongoing battle at which Satan wants to stop us. So what do we pray? Uh, Thy kingdom come. Or to uh, quote a very familiar table prayer, which is gloriously eschatological, uh, uh, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. 
which is hardly, which is not a cute yeah. table prayer. They're praying, you're actually praying for this to finally happen. Uh, sorry for those of you who like to think of it. That's I mean, right. it's a nice sentiment, but it's, we're actually praying a very eschatological prayer. And then John's going to end with it, with the word Maranatha. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The, I mean, when I think about this happening right now, I think there is a baptismal connection. You know, the, the day of the Lord has happened to us in our baptisms, where we were connected to the death and the resurrection of Christ, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6. There's the day of the Lord that happens to us, so that on the day of the Lord at the end, we know where we stand. We are clothed in those garments. Yeah, that's the, a the battle's already over. We're just waiting for it to finally happen, which is a weird way of, oh, well, yeah. welcome to the land of Revelation. Right, right. Okay, so so this is the reference here. It is done in verse 17. And then you get all those those signs, which as you pointed out, many of them are Good Friday signs. I, I hear echoes of uh, the Exodus Mount Sinai there yet again. Uh, yeah, talk to us so, about some of those signs. Uh, lots of Good Friday stuff. But this language of the earthquake, a text for us to really kind of have in the background, and we're not going to have time to read it out loud, I realize, is take a look at Isaiah 24 on this. So Isaiah 24, just to give you the geography of the text or where we are, uh, 24 to 27 is Isaiah's big eschatological chapters. And what 24 describes is, oh, it's the law to 25's gospel, if you will. It is this, uh, God is coming to judge the earth to set things in order and nothing can escape. So if you take a look actually at Isaiah, oh, just take a, take a brief look at Isaiah 24 verse 18, we're going to see something very similar going on here. So if you take a look at 24, yeah. All right, so Isaiah 24 yeah, verse 18 so, uh, says mm-hmm. in the ESV, He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare, for the windows of heaven are opened and the foundations of the earth. Yeah, might as well trim. give us one more verse while you're at it. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth yeah, is violently So shaken. here we have this earthquake to describe it. And the reason Isaiah is using earthquake here, and you'll see the one thing we don't have is a flood here in Revelation 16. Uh, small problem. Uh, God said he won't, no, no more global floods since Noah. So even here, Isaiah is taking actually flood language, but he can't give us a flood, so windows of he- from on high being opened but giving us a flood image, but you can't have a flood because God said no more floods. So instead we get an earthquake. Right. Okay. So the, the earthquake yeah. comes in verse 18. That splits the great city into three parts. Then cities of the nations fall. God remembers Babylon to make her drain the cup of wine oh, to the fury of his man. wrath. What's, the great, what's the great city uh, that's split into three parts? Uh, years ago at our campus, we had a uh, conference on urban ministry. It was right when I got here. So and one of the presentations was a theology of the city, which I said to my colleague, I'm like, what a great idea. You're going to, it'll take you about, you know, about three sentences to do a theology of the city in the Bible. Um, actually, about two words, uh, city bad. Uh, really, that's and I'm like, okay, you're going to have to talk. You're talking for 45 minutes on this, and you only have two words to say. Uh, cities in the Bible, this Tower Babel, Tower Babel is in the background. Almost said Babylon, that's coming up is that cities are a, the epitome of man-made hubris. Uh, a city is a provision, actually, of God's mountain. We're going to make our own mountains so we can be in charge. So this, oh, human futility, Tower Babel talk. So to have the city gone now means uh, humans, 
Humans hubris, hubris pride, and, oh, it's more than pride, uh, going to the Tower of Babel. Uh, Tower of Babel isn't just pride. Uh, if they're building a mountain to get to the heavens, uh, they're not actually saying, look at us. No, they're actually staging an invasion upon the divine throne room. In Tower of Babel, though, God can't figure out what's going on. God has to look down and, okay, stupid humans. But by doing this, uh, this is every attack upon God's reign is now utterly broken. Uh, cities are always negative in the Bible. All right, so this great city is split into three parts. More cities fall. Talk a little bit about Babel and the grape having to drain the cup of the wine. At of this the point, you know, I can almost give you a second Obadiah illusion, but I'll try to avoid it. Uh, yeah, okay. I was wondering uh, if you that, might that, 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 But that's a, a, comment, that's a different commentary written by Dr. Paul Rabi, who gives us about an 80-page excursus. It is uh, Obadiah commentary. Uh, we can, wine has two different things yeah. going on here. The wine generally is a very positive thing. Not here. Oh, this I this drain the cup of wrath is a very rich language. It's the language of an addict. Uh, they uh, are given the cup, but once they take it, because they are utterly addicted to this absolute poison, they keep drinking it and cannot stop until they cease to exist. So this becomes a very big image of divine wrath. Okay, and the fact that Babylon drinks it I think Babylon is the one that tried to make oh, yeah. others drink it. Is, I mean, yeah, Jeremiah, this is what is Jeremiah, Jeremiah does with it. Or Isaiah. Jeremiah is the one that talks about that. And now she has to drink what she was forcing others to drink. Yeah. So she gets what she deserves, to use language from previous yeah, and, in this uh, cycle. Oh, and, okay, I can't resist. I mean, it's Obadiah 16. Uh, yeah, you, you, yeah, you're going, oh, you're, uh, man, and, and who would have thought we'd have Obadiah illusions? This is the, but, uh, I did, frankly, I didn't, I didn't see, see this today. coming before we started talking. Uh, but this, yeah, and this is where evil is unleashed for the purpose of it consuming itself. And now we see uh, evil consuming itself. Right. Well, and that takes us back to what we talked about toward the beginning, that God unleashes, he lets this evil go forth for the purpose of that evil then consuming itself. And that's what we're starting to see right here. And even thinking about that in connection to the cross, the way that, that Satan marshals his forces against Jesus in efforts to, to kill him, and he does kill him, but that ends up being his own defeat. I mean, I think is a good yeah, example. Yeah, and kind of Babylon to be remembered here, that's not a good thing. Uh, and remembering, it's not God right. had forgotten who Babylon was. That's not what remember means here. Uh, when we talk about the language of remembrance, knowledge, take your pick, this is a, 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 a relational word, but this is not good. Uh, to state the obvious here, uh, God to yeah. remember means, okay, God is now interacting with Babylon. Uh, the language of visitation, but it's the visitation to inspect, to set right, or in this case, to destroy. Yeah. All right. So in verse 20, every island flees away, and then no mountains are found. And then in verse 21, great hailstones, 100 pounds each, which is bigger than any hailstone I've ever seen personally or in a picture that starts to fall. Uh, yeah, I, 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 oh, I don't have the reference here in my in my uh, notes, but I, I was looking at uh, Grant Osborne's commentary on Revelation. And apparently, he did a somebody did a calculus of one of his classes for how big that hailstone was. And the short version is it's big. So, uh, I, I I do Hebrew poetry for just for those of you who haven't figured that out yet. I don't do math. I'm very thankful to work with competent people who can do the math that I don't pretend to ever understand. But, okay, but back to this idea, okay, mountains are your stock image of strength. 
So the mountains to be gone. Back and again, please, when you get a chance after this broadcast, read Isaiah 24 here. It's really helpful. Uh, mountains sinking is a very important stock image of what it means for all of everything that we thought that looked invincible invincible to be gone. And then we move from that, and now we have yeah, what to do with the hailstones? Another nice little plague reference. They're gigantic. Right. Uh, we already had play, the hailstones showing up in Revelation 8-7. They were mixed with blood. But now here, for the as we bring about this new exodus, this final triumph of God's people being brought to the new creation, to the promised land, we have a hail, uh, hail like any other, unlike any other, in order to, oh, in order to uh, demonstrate God's victory, in order to show that God is superior to the false gods. But then we end with the tragic thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, all this is designed not necessarily, oh, not only to punish these kings of the East, the kings that have been assembling themselves, but ultimately to cause, to hopefully to bring about the repentance. But just like Pharaoh, they are utterly hard, hardened. They are utterly hopeless. So instead of them uh, being repentant, they have just, oh, they've oh, blasphemed God, cursed God, and have refused to turn around. Yeah. Yeah, which is what we've seen in other places in the book of Revelation, that instead of the repentance that God desired, there was only further blasphemy, and it continues to grow worse, which is the, the tragedy of what happened with the plagues in Egypt and the tragedy here. Got about a minute left here, Dr. Teets. Help us with this text. What's the what's the warning? What's the encouragement? What's the comfort for us as Christians as we consider this? I, I've gotten excited about all the gross stuff and the big stuff, but we can't get, I don't want you to get lost. But this is primarily a message of hope. Uh, the hope that there's a lot of, to be God's people means we go, we will, the world will hate us because of Jesus. And with all of that, we have this message of hope that is here couched in terms of destruction. Our hope is that evil finally is, de- we, we long for the ultimate defeat of evil. It's already happened, but we look for evil being brought to its end. So this language of destruction, hailstones, take your pick, cup of wrath, there's a lot going on here, Armageddon for that matter, is our hope. Because what we long for when we pray, come Lord Jesus, is we long for Jesus to come and to end evil for good, and that we may live before him in the new creation. This is an image, this really is a text of essentially pure hope. Yeah, yeah. yeah. God be praised for the victory that he has won, the victory that he gives. The Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets is Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He has been helping us today to study Revelation 16, verses 12 to 21. Oh, thank you for giving me a chance to finally teach the book I always wanted to teach. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about this part of Revelation 16, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.